Hey there. Welcome to Tiny Shifts. In a world where it can be too easy to be overwhelmed by, well, pretty much everything, this podcast is about how the tiniest of shifts we can make in our everyday life can radiate out, making big and meaningful changes in our world, nudging it to be a little bit more courageous, a little bit more joyful, and definitely more loving. I'm so grateful you're joining us for this, our third episode of this new little podcast. I'm Reverend Sean, I'm one of your hosts, and today on the podcast, we're continuing our series, Prophets and Bystanders, where we're challenging ourselves to step off the sidelines and engage in intentional action against fascism, the rising tenets of fascism, the practices, the policies that we're seeing in this world, while at the same time not getting completely overwhelmed by it, figuring out a way that we can make it through. Now, last week we talked about the institution of church and how it can be for many people a way through. And there may be some of you who are listening that found that episode helpful of working through some of the questions you have about the nature of church, but it also could have been confusing to you if you're listening and aren't part of our community. And you might be wondering, well, what are the things I can do outside of that? And that's what we're tackling today. We're tackling what are the practices that we can take up in our individual lives? What sort of sacrifices are we willing to make to really counter this perennial human challenge. Because I think a lot of us, even as we realize the challenge of this rising kind of autocratic system, don't feel like we have the time or maybe the energy or the capacity to do it. We're so naturally focused on our own lives. And yet that exact inner turn, the turn to ourselves, the atomization of just caring about those closest in is actually fabric that, well, fascism can thrive in because we're disconnected from each other and not willing to sacrifice something meaningful. And I know I've said the sacrifice word a lot, which when coming from a religious community, a religious perspective, even a progressive one can, of course, be triggering. But I hope today you'll find in this invitation a way in. So for some context, Reverend Gretchen is going to share a message that really is about how do you, how do we find our way in? She offers five tangible strategies for us to take, and I think they are all holistic and they're all challenging. I'm, as you're listening, I, I want you to think about where you fit into this equation, because this is no time for idleness. But to set the stage... I'm going to share a reading from the poet Wendell Berry. It's entitled The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Maybe something you know, uh, or maybe a new one. It's a kind of beautiful articulation of an anti-individualist, counter-cultural perspective. And so here it is. Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. Love the quick profit, the annual raids, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbor and to die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they'll let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. 
Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance. For what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophecy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ears close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the world to end. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and politicals can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox, who can make more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Last Sunday, I told you about sitting down with the rabbi from Har Shalom. You may remember I told you about how the first people who called her after the Hamas attack were Christian evangelicals. What I didn't tell you is that she shared this with me because she wanted to also say that she was surprised and sad that she didn't also get a call from us. Not because she thought we'd have a particular position but because she thought we would just be there for them in their grief and fear. Your community always has a moral compass, she said. I did eventually email her. It's how we ended up sitting down, but it took long enough that it left some questions and feeling alone in loss. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we as an institution didn't reach out sooner with some of those we shared in our public letter, like just how we were, we were unsure how best to respond. And also, I think we, we failed to fully understand the impact of an attack on Israel, what that would likely have on American Jews. But for me, personally, there is, I have to tell you, another reason why I didn't reach out sooner, which is that I was really busy. I was caught up in my own world and my own troubles. I mean, you might remember we had to close our building that week due to construction. We were hosting people all across the country from out of town for a training that weekend. And at home, my partner, she was out of town the whole week and Oh, it was my daughter's 18th birthday. And then my son, he broke his finger. And then my father-in-law broke a rib. I was really busy. Now, I didn't say any of this to Rabbi Feinstone that day or obviously include it in the public letter because really, it doesn't matter. 
the failure to call is still a failure to call. And there's no real excuse or reason that can make that feel better. But I'm sharing it here not just to spread my regret around, (laughs) but more I'm sharing it because I think it's a perfect example of life today. Whatever our intent or our values, we are often too busy, too consumed by our own lives. The urgency of our daily lives means we don't call, let alone march or let alone organize for meaningful change. I mean, who even has time to fight fascism, right? Because really, when it comes down to it, we are taught that a good life means focusing on our own good lives, being good, leaving little margin for things beyond our most immediate sphere. We learn to strive for our children to be happy or for our grandchildren to have a better life than we had. Better life, like have more financial security, more personal satisfaction to call this good, good enough. We learn to be good consumers, clear about our personal preferences and experts at acquiring stuff that can satisfy these preferences. The values of the market reinforced by the American dream and the often but not always invisible forces of white supremacy, patriarchy, and compulsory heterosexuality conspire to keep us caught in a value system centered on competition, extraction, and wealth accumulation. Depending on our race, our mental and physical health, our sexual orientation, our gender, and a host of other factors, we may be more or less constrained by this system, but we are all caught. Even if we actively despise all of these values, we still need to worry about our own retirement and the market and the value of our home, even if we find the whole system abhorrent we need to think about our own security. Or at least if we're lucky, we get to think about our own security, our retirement, the value of our home. We are caught in a systemic selfishness, a structural self-interest that often inhibits even the most developed moral compass from meaningful action. Unitarian ethicist James Luther Adams describes how people of a liberal faith can get caught in this reality. You might remember JLA, he's the one who traveled to Germany and then returned with a fervor for articulating a liberalism that would stop fascism if it ever came to the States. To begin, he described the history, historical vulnerabilities of liberalism, specifically what he called the idolatry of individualism. Now, ironically, that liberal value of the individual arose in response to the threat of authoritarianism and the fear of limits on personal freedom. The idea of the individual and the power of the individual is at the heart of the commitments that Sean was articulating in his prayer. The risks that we can hold for other people, even if they are living in ways that we ourselves would not live, These are positive, important values of our faith. 
It is only when that individualism is taken as the ultimate good, or as JLA describes, when a social movement adopts as the center for loyalty an inflated, misplaced abstraction made into the absolute, that it fosters the fascism it was originally intended to prevent. This perverted understanding of liberal faith fails to pair individualism with community, where protecting the vulnerable is our shared ultimate end. Without community, liberalism, JLA says, confuses good theology with an individual's good life and offers a kind of self-satisfied moralism of ethical precepts that relies on progress ideology. This form of liberal faith, he says, misses the depth dimension and becomes impotent in dealing with the ultimate issues of life. Now Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's the theologian most known for his resistance to the Nazis, he identified those who idolize individualism as one of two groups who passively ensured the success of the Nazis. Such people, he wrote, neither steal nor murder nor commit adultery, but do good according to their abilities. But in voluntarily renouncing public life, these people know exactly how to observe the permitted boundaries that shield them from conflict. They must close their eyes and ears to the injustice around them. And besides these privileged individualists, Bonhoeffer also identifies the centrists as the other key passive collaborators in the Nazis' rise. He wrote, with best intentions, they believe that with a little reason, they can pull back together a structure that has come apart at the joints. Remember, he was writing this. In, in, about Nazi Germany, about what happened there. He said, the centrists want to be fair to both sides, and so they are crushed between the colliding forces. Bitterly disappointed that the world is so unreasonable, they too withdraw, just like the first group, and become focused on their own individual goodness. How are we doing? It's a lot. Be kind of uncomfortable, especially for those of us who do spend a good deal of time caring for others, who care about systemic injustice and trying to be for a goodness that is beyond our own individual lives. It can be a lot. It can be uncomfortable to name the ways we are caught. We are all caught in this structure that inhibits our resistance. Uncomfortable, but I hope also helpful. Because in naming this as a systemic issue, we can hopefully avoid the guilt that can paralyze us when we think we are the problem. Like we're, we're personally failing to fight fascism. We're personally not doing enough to fix all that's wrong with the world. We can instead remember that we are all caught in this structure that is built to make opposition, let alone the creation of sustainable alternatives, fail. The structure is what's failing. 
we are all just doing the best we can. Starting from this assumption that we're all doing the best we can in a broken system encourages a cooperative generosity from which we can imagine not just resisting, but actively practicing an alternative vision for life together. Something like the vision that Wendell Berry offers in his manifesto. Now, Wendell Berry wrote that poem that Sean read and his other Mad Farmer poems. If you haven't read them, I encourage you to. He, he wrote them 50 years ago, even though it feels very current, except for maybe the binary wonderings about men and women and power. We know how that went. The line, when they want you to buy something, they will call you. It seems like a direct reference to what author Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. Barry, who is now age 89, has spent his life critiquing both liberal and conservative versions of individualism and the base assumption that if you want it, you should have it. More than just critique, Barry's life reminds us that we can, with a sustained commitment to the collective good, reclaim our capacity to resist and rebuild, and we can resist the forces that keep us caught and become effective actors in the fight against fascism. In that spirit, I'm going to end my sermon. This is the second week in a row with a list of five practices. This week, not oriented towards church, although your church can and should help you with these practices, but more for your own life to be a protest. They're ordered, I'm going to offer them to you, in what I think will be increasingly uncomfortable challenges. So just bear with me. So the first one, redefine what you mean by success. A few weeks ago, Sean preached a sermon pre uh, praising failure. He said, we should fail at perfection if it means we strive for radical acceptance. We should fail at independence if it means we strive for interdependence. We should fail at efficiency if it means we strive for sustainability. And we should fail at individual material wealth if it means we strive for collective prosperity. All of these things are just another way of saying we need to redefine success itself. To reimagine our lives based on a success that is collective sustainable, connected, and caring, requires a reimagining of what achievements we prize, what awards we give out, and what judgments from others we can endure. Now, just a side note, I have teenagers. Maybe some of you also have teenagers or recently, or maybe almost have teenagers. Anyway, what happens when you have teenagers is that the questions around what they're going to be and what they're going to do ramp up to them and to their parents. And so that means the pressures around what successful life means starts to ramp up. So when I say what judgments from others we can endure as we're trying to reimagine what success means, I mean those kinds of moments. 
And of course, we also need to reprogram what we tell ourselves and when we are telling ourselves we're doing a good job. What does a good job mean? Because it is the internal messages that really get to us, that story we have in our heads. We've got to reprogram ourselves, tell ourselves new stories about what really matters and the vision we are working towards. And P.S., you probably can't find it on a Pinterest board. Number two, embrace a long view of time. Sean talks about the moral arc of the universe in his uh, prayer. This is sort of in that vein. As Americans, we tend to have a very short memory. We are, have a very limited, we're like a young, you know, a young country. So it's very American to have a very short concept of time and especially in today's media cycle. But it is helpful to remember and recognize the longer arc at work in today's reality. This seemingly abrupt emergence of fascist tactics and ideologies in recent years is actually the outcome of, a, of decades long reactions to the civil rights movement and second wave feminism. As Paul Mason writes, fascism results when the fear of freedom is triggered by a glimpse of freedom. I know it's like a whole other sermon, but just stay, stay with me for a second. I'm going to say it, I'm going to, I'm going to say it at least one more time. Fascism results when the fear of freedom is triggered by a glimpse of freedom. And remember what I said right before that, right? That, the, that what we're seeing now is actually the outcome of decades-long reactions to the civil rights movement and second-wave feminism. Alongside that, a long view of time reminds us of the, the resistance movements that have been and are still today a part of human reality all across the globe, which means we don't need to invent resistance ourselves. A long view of time also inspires in us, reminds us the importance of the discipline to break free from the cycle of crisis response and instead invest in systems that could prevent the emergencies in the first place. For example, while we had an incredible response to last winter's sudden arrival of immigrants seeking shelter in Fort Collins, since then, it has been really difficult to prioritize the resources that would create the systems to support an ongoing arrival of immigrants in our community. Urgent calls and emergencies, they capture our intention. You have a clear deadline, a clear call to action, but it is the ongoing non-emergency systems building work that creates a more durable solution, regardless of what will happen in the next election cycle. And just as importantly, that longer view of time reminds us that this work, it will last our whole lives, which means we can and must be sustainable in our practices. Take regular breaks, take time to rest and renew and reflect as the Oakland-based justice group, the movement generation reminds us, if it's not soulful, it's not strategic which emphasizes the need for the work, this work of resistance itself to be so irresistible 
It can hold us through the best and the hardest times. Number three. Blame the billionaires. Despite what social media and journalists keep telling us, the source of fascism is not the crowd gathering at the Trump rallies, and it's not even the brother-in-law you will be sitting down to dinner with next Thursday, or not, because last year got too heated. To find the real problem, follow the money the individuals, and multinational corporations that disproportionately hold the wealth in our country and who could, on their own, address many of the collective problems we face and could, if they wanted, stop the rise of fascism. But they don't want. Because fascism brings with it an underfunded IRS, insufficiently progressive tax policies, and a lack of environmental and safety regulations. As Wendell Berry observes, both liberals and conservatives have been so preoccupied by our respective focus on securing individual freedoms, we have refused to look straight at the dangers and the failures of government by corporations. We must refocus our attention on these hoarders of wealth and resist the outrage machine of social media that only feeds the profits of tech giants and media conglomerates. Number four, expand the idea of family. The nuclear family unit is often lifted up as the source of social stability, which it to me means it makes a very critical site for resistance and re-envisioning. Specifically, I've been thinking we need to go back to the village idea that Hillary Clinton offered us, but take it a little more literally than she did. I mean, raising kids today, it is not a job for just two adults anymore, if it ever was. We need more hands on deck. We need trusted adults who have margin in their lives to build real and invested relationships with children who are not their own and with their parents to the point of calling each other family. We also need to be open to and publicly supportive of alternative family structures that are more common in the queer community and in Gen Z. Multi-adult households, long-term co-housing, and poly relationships to name a few, recognizing that any effort that offers a wider circle of support and then engages a wider circle of concern is a good thing. And finally, why don't we elevate friendships to the same social status as marriage? We have so many social rituals and celebrations of marriage, but so few affirmations of our friends. Even though friends are vital to our survival across the whole of our lives, I mean, imagine if it was normal for friends to throw themselves an anniversary party or to get jewelry marking their shared commitment. Number five, let go of your money on purpose. I told you it was going to get increasingly more uncomfortable, right? To give away our money 
especially in ways that reach a good beyond our own lives or lifetimes, is a powerful act in resisting capitalism, which tells us that once the money's yours, it's always yours or your children's. Regardless of whose sacrifices made that money coming to you possible. To give away your money is to recognize instead our interdependence and the systems that we're all a part of that brought that money your way. Now at the micro level, especially within communities of color, younger generations, they're already doing this. They're already giving away their money through crowdfunding for a layoff or a medical crisis, or I've seen friends come together to help one another buy their first home. This is a beautiful and countercultural practice, and it is insufficient for the change we need. For that, we need to reconsider generational giving and challenge the assumption that our descendants are automatically the primary recipients of our estate, and instead think more intentionally about the ways that our money could be used for the greatest collective good. This, of course, brings us to conversations around reparations and generational injustice and generational inequality, but where to give your money instead is a big question. And a, again, whole other sermon, but the book Decolonizing Wealth is one place to begin. They have a website too, if you are curious about this powerful form of resistance. Now you may have already realized, if you were paying attention, that together these five practices give us the useful acronym REBEL. Ha, which I'm not very, I'm not very good at acronyms, so I felt very proud of myself about this one. It's so let me say them again. Reimagine, redefine success. Embrace a long view of time. Blame the billionaires. Expand your idea of family and let go of your money. Certainly this is not an exhaustive list. I hope you will come up with your own things for our shared manifesto that is our vision for a radical resistance and reimagining. And then I hope you will consider which of these you will experiment with in your own lives and what you are willing to sacrifice. In his final analysis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized the Nazis couldn't be stopped because people weren't willing to sacrifice. Not enough. They wanted to first find some reassurance of their own continued safety, their, their children's safety before they would act. They didn't want to look like radicals. They wanted to be reasonable. To practice resurrection, as Wendell Berry says, is to recognize that the structures of our lives must be undone and let go. That life has become too small, too individualized. We're all too caught and to practice resurrection is to instead be a part of an expansive new way of life, a movement fighting for the birth of beloved community that is abundant life for all. May it be so, and amen.
So you've heard these five challenges, these five rebellions that we're all invited into. We have redefine what you mean by success, embrace the long view of time, blame the billionaires, expand the idea of family, let go of your money on purpose. And that is a pretty substantial list, each of them knitting us deeper into community and collective worldview and the practice, not just the perspective, but the actual practice of being knit together, of being bound together. And you may be saying, Sean, this podcast is called Tiny Shifts, and you just asked me to shift pretty much everything in my life. So what am I to take? So here's your tiny shift for the week. I want you to notice when that idolatry of individualism is keeping you caught and preventing you from a life that is more connected to a common good. So what does that mean? It means notice the temptations that may arise to focus your attention only inwards. Both when you get overwhelmed, I know I have this thought pattern that when I'm overwhelmed, I think, oh, if I don't have all the answers, then like, well, um, I should, I, I can't do anything about it. What a terrible perspective that is, I'll say about myself, because it assumes that me as an individual should have all the answers and could do everything. No, that again is lifting me way too high up on a pedestal. Notice when you're drawn to only care about those who are proximate to you. And just in the noticing, may not seem like a lot. You're like, no, I want to do more. No, just notice. Because in noticing, you have the opportunity to imagine what might be different. What might be different? What possibilities lie? What opportunities? Maybe even what sacrifice? So thanks for listening to this episode of Tiny Shifts. It's a little bit shorter than the other ones because it is the Thanksgiving break. And so we're taking a little bit of a breather. But next week, we'll be back with another episode. An episode focusing on the rise of Christian nationalism, a very specific strand of Christian evangelical theology that views this country as inherently destined to be theocratically Christian. And how we as progressives, those seeking a pluralistic world, can respond. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Hey there. Welcome to Tiny Shifts. In a world where it can be too easy to be overwhelmed by, well, pretty much everything, this podcast is all about how the tiniest of shifts we can make in our everyday life can radiate out and make big and meaningful changes in this world, nudging it to be a little bit more courageous, a little bit more joyful, and definitely more loving. I'm so glad that you're joining us for this first episode.